0: You're listening to This q Life, a podcast that looks at the world through the lens of a queer person of color. Now, if you're just joining us for the first time, welcome. If you're coming back, we've got a lot to talk about. And we have been missing since February. Um, And actually, um, it's all because of, you guessed it, the coronavirus and the pandemic. The building that we usually record in uh, at Brick Studios in downtown Brooklyn uh, closed down uh, due to coronavirus, and we were not able to reserve or meet for the podcast, especially with quarantine and social distancing. So you may actually be able to hear that I am in my apartment, in my bedroom, and you probably hear the New York City streets. Behind me, the police are out in full force. Stay safe out there, folks, because not only are we threatened by this coronavirus, but with recent events uh, as of the recording of this intro, um, we are also and have always been um, subject to police violence and brutality. This episode is actually brought to you. Well, let me tell you for introduce myself first of all. My name is Jonathan. aka Blation F.M.A. Uh, pronouns are he, him, and his. Uh, and this is a special episode that I actually recorded all the way back at the beginning of Season 3, back in, I think, September. Uh, I think you'll appreciate the guest that I brought on uh, and had a one-on-one interview with, especially now that HBO Max has released its um, you know hbo max has released and one of its shows in fact is uh legendary a show about ballroom i felt it was important to release this previously patron only uh interview uh, because you know time release uh the patrons on patreon had access to this a long long time ago but now is the appropriate time for the public to hear this conversation because in it i speak with michael Robson uh of ballroom repute um you know it's interesting because uh, not everyone who is black and queer or brown and queer <clears throat> excuse me has a connection to the ballroom um or even ballroom culture or kiki culture or anything like that it is its own thing and so um i don't like to particularly speak about things that I don't have a deep understanding or participation in I love watching pose and you know but you, that even has some criticism which I think we get into so um without further ado because the episode is already long enough uh, the interview is already long enough I'm gonna stop rambling and leave you to this special episode this interview this history of ballroom this is this cupac life
1: this cupac life
0: All right, so we're here in the studio, and I'm here with Michael Roberson. Roberson, right? That's it. Now, do you go by any other name? Is this like your government name that they don't want you to? We don't want to say on on the airwaves.
1: No, that's my absolute government name, except for the fact that. Yeah, let's move uh, this closer. Except for the fact that most people pronounce it Roberson. Roberson. All my life, it's been Roberson. Okay. Oh. Roberson sounds blacker. Sounds blacker. Yeah, because wasn't there a uh, Paul Roberson? Paul Roberson. Yeah. Paul Roberson. And part of it is my mother. Who was born Elizabeth Mary Austin, and she married, um, and his last name was Robertson. She left North Carolina to come to Camden, New Jersey, in '42, and to get rid of to get away from her husband, she switched her name around to Mary Elizabeth and took the T out.
0: All right, black woman black taking woman, control yeah. of her life. That's it. I I I would I would like to see a lifetime movie of that. Yeah yeah. <laughs> Made for TV.
1: Yeah yeah. Or
0: maybe a Netflix
1: original. Yeah. B.E.T.
0: Oh, okay, B E T. No, no. Let me
1: speak. Let me speak it into universe. My mother, my other mother, my hyper fantastic imagination. Oprah Winfrey's network.
0: Okay, <laughs> we are here for Oprah and her network. Um, what is on there that I like? Uh, I've always wanted to see the haves and the have nots. Never, never.
1: Like so never, people, as in you've never seen it, or I've never you never don't seen want it really. See it. And a lot of people like it, mm-hmm. and I'm surprised. But I have never. So this is to my own ignorance. Um, just a title says something cheesy. But what I well, do like Tyler Perry. What I do like is utterly love Green Deep. utterly Wait, utter- is that on? Yes. Okay. Utterly, utterly love Queen Sugar.
0: Queen Sugar. So Ugh. I'm gonna have to edit this, but I've never seen Queen Queen Sugar. Oh
1: my God. You would utterly be it's so brilliantly done. It's Anna De- Duvernay. Duvernay, yeah. Duvernay. Um and their new show, David makes Makes Man. It's Absolutely. Not birthday. even heard of that. Wonderful. David Makes Man. Yeah, On Own? Yes, it's the guy, one of the producers or the creators of Moonlight. Oh, okay. Um, But Trace, Lissette, who's a legendary Trace Rahi, is one of the uh, uh, cast members of the show. But it's absolutely wonderful. set mm. in Miami. It's great. You had to watch it.
0: Yeah, right here. I do have to say, we met at uh, Slay TV, yes. uh, Slay Fest, yes. over the summer of 2019, this past summer. Yes. Uh, the panel was what, again? It was it was very interesting, and I wanted to see
1: it. So it was who's become my good, good, I call it my good Judy, the iconic Michaela Angela Davis cultural fashion critic, um, wanted to do a conversation between cisgendered, black cisgender women and black trans women. And so she knew I had started this thing with my good sister, Dominic Jackson, Tyra, Place plays on, on pose called in conversation, so she wanted to place sort of that format in conversation, so she had worked Willis and Dominic Jackson herself, and asked me to do this historical narrative, particularly on Ballroom as the black trans woman this this that and that and that net
0: right and so you were saying some stuff during that whole because for me, it's all an edu- i'm it's educational for a lot of us out here, and that's why we have a lot of listeners. It's like we're tr- uh, we try to talk to with people about things that. Within our own community, we can become better educated about so that we don't have to say, Oh, I'm sorry, I don't know what that means. Or, like, so me doing my own research over the summer and attending panels, I was like, Okay, this sounds interesting. But then you started saying some things during that panel that I was like, Let me, I need to make sure I approach this person (laughs) after the panel because we need to talk about some of this stuff you were talking about. I don't know if you remember what you said, but I'm going to remind you right now. Okay. You were talking about tracing ballroom, okay, back to not only before, not only the '80s, and not during the Queen era of that documentary, w- where um, mm-hmm. Crystal LaBeja got so mm-hmm. mad that she stormed off. Not those drag balls, but even before that, 1920s Harlem Renaissance, absolutely, and then before that, the Great Migration. Well, I was like, how does
1: this connect? Well, it was it was very easily. Partly is because all black. If you think about Northeastern migration, the, the, the all-cultural response could not happen if not, right? Right. And so what I tend to do is to make ballroom... Let me back into that. So my backing into think is my Holy Ghost moment. Hey. Um. And so I remember when I was um thinking about going to do PhD work, and uh, I applied to Duke Theological... Duke Divinity School, Duke Theological Seminary, one of them. And... Partly it's because my mentor, Dr. Ebony Marshall Terman, um, had just become the director of Black Church Studies, and she wanted me to do it there with her. I didn't get in. It's a very conservative um, institution. But then I applied to Northwestern, and I've always desired to lodge the history of ballroom not through a queer lens, but through a black lens. Okay. And so, so because of that, this notion that it's not for slavery, right, if not for the Emancipation Proclamation and the construction of Black Reconstruction, and if not for its dismantle. Lynching arises out of that dismantle of Black Reconstruction, and if not for the creation of Jim and Jane Crow racism and Black folk moving from the South to the North, and Harlem become the Black Mecca. Between this 10-year period, if you will, maybe 11 or 12, between the late late 19-teens, so the 1919 to about 1930-31, the creation of an artistic political movement called the Harlem Renaissance. And we all know that, particularly in the early days of migration, the black church was the cornerstone of black community, creating the ethos. Um, And so Abyssinian Baptist Church created a three-decade campaign to get rid of black queers. Black folk are survival people. And so at the very brink of our annihilation, we become very creative in our survival skills. And so there were three ways that we congregated, and one of those ways was drag balls and drag balls become the largest space for black queers at the time, created by black trans women. We didn't call them trans then. And they were called drag balls because the notion of getting up in drag. And that's why I say first and foremost that ballroom is a... Now, let me be real clear. Drag ball wasn't created by black... Drag ball wasn't necessarily created in Harlem. The very Oh, the drag ball wasn't city created in Harlem. The very first one, as we as, as much as we can in store size was 1869. But just like you have... Um, the baseball league, and then you have the Negro baseball league. It's the same thing. A Harlem drag ball emerges out of the intersection of both uh, um, white supremacy and black homophobia. And so Harlem drag ball from a black space was created. And and that's why I say that um, uh, uh, ballroom is first and foremost a black trans womanist theological discourse, because it creates itself in many ways in contestation to the black church, creating my definition of theology is when people make a meaning out of their life and suffering, right? It's a woman named Kelly Brown Douglas who is at Union Theological Seminary who talks about the theology is about faith-seeking understanding. And so here is what's the theological response to the, to the abomination narrative, right? Right. So
0: this abomination narrative, I'm going to— roll it back to something that you talked about in, in all of that. Abyssinian Baptist Church's agenda or campaign or regime, however you want to put it, to,
1: get target, rid of get
0: rid, to eliminate queerness. What was that all well, about? Well, because
1: it was responding to so the notion of re- respectable politics, responding to um, a, I think it was a Dutch, a moral report form that was put out. That said, that Harlem was the most vice-written community um, in New York City, and so what we tend to do was we respond to the notion of being res- being seen as respectable to those who we think have more power. So since Dutch and, and and the notion of white supremacy, what was making us not respectable in the eyes of the church was these black queers, and so so there was a, a decade. So it was so what he would do. I see what he would do. So it, you can look this up. And so um, Adam Clayton Powell, Sr., in fact.
0: Adam Clayton Powell, Sr., Sr.
1: the father of the famous congressman who was the— Because I was going to say, I only know this as a
0: street name in Harlem.
1: Oh, you don't know who Adam Clayton Powell is? Really?
0: Maybe I need to cut that So out. Adam Clayton Powell,
1: Jr., <laughs> it goes down in history as the person who has gets the most civil rights amendments passed. He was a congressman from Harlem, very popular— light skin beautiful, all these other things, and there was re- attention so the here is the the fifty sixth attention when Martin Luther King rose up in if you will, in the ranks and turns of its of its politics and wanting to be seen and so um at least the way that that it was articulated, and so the junior the junior in fact uh, is responsible largely for Bayard Ruster being pushed out of the civil rights movement. Mm, Now I know that story. Well, he goes to Martin Luther King and say that if you march in front of the Democratic National Convention, that we would tell folk that you and Bayard are in relationship. And so the fear of that getting out. And so Bayard resigned. And so, but his father... was heading this the campaign? Scene. No, the junior was the right. Oh. They father created The campaign in the twenties, and uh, and so he would, you know, he would use the church to sermonize against black queers. He would publish these sermons in the Amsterdam News, and some of some of them were published in Jet magazine. And so,
0: it was a campaign.
1: So, so
0: basically, white people came along, and said, in all of New York, Harlem is a really bad neighborhood. No, and really so,
1: not necessarily bad. Vice ridden.
0: Vice ridden yeah. neighborhood. And so, and so the black pe- the leadership in black in Harlem in, to include the church and probably headed by the church he said one of the cornerstones was like well it's these queers queers that are giving us this report. So we need one to get thing, rid
1: of One of the one of the things that would be done was a warning of black folk moving from the south to north to Harlem particularly be, uh, this warning that if to black women that be careful, you're coming up to a space you're not used to. And when you get here, your men are not going to want to be with you. You're going to be with other men. They would do the same thing to men and all these other things. And so, yeah. And so mm-hmm. this this, this the othering, if you will, of these folk um, uh, and this notion of us being respectable as black folk, we were getting in the way, you know. Part of and even Du Bois, no disrespect, but W. B. Du Bois, the notion of the town that comes from, in many ways, respectable politics. Um, and in fact, he fired one of his assistants who got caught having sex in one of the train stations, and so he.
0: Lord, this t- this this civil and pre civil rights era tea <laughs> that you're spilling here. My goodness. So, but my thing, like, as I'm thinking about it, as you're saying, I'm just responding to what I'm hearing. It's like, but where did the queer people come from? It's like you're saying, you're, you're telling people from the South. I'm uh, just, no, no, I'm not. No, I'm, I'm just,
1: I, I'm agreeing with you. I'm like,
0: well, he, where would they come from? They're well, down here, there, here, too. Here's
1: the thing. I was, that, so here's the point. So part of my pushback, I, I, fought, I remember being on 8th Avenue around 16th and 8th when Pulse shooting happened. Mm. Me and my son James was walking down the street and there were two folk walking near us. I assumed they were heterosexual, younger than I, um, and black. Black male, black female. And we're having this conversation and I overheard them say, you know, this thing about Paul, they're saying this is the biggest mass shooting in at the time in American history. All the and all that can't be true because all of the things that happened to black people. And I was saying to myself, I wanted to say to no, them, you act like black LGBT folk are not black. Mm-hmm. And so when we talk about slavery, you act like the, 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 the master said, oh, no, you gay, yeah, you queer, you free. Right. And so the point of the point of that is that there was no moment where God said, oh, my God, you know what? I forgot to create the queers Do do. And that year he created queers, the, the queerness, if you will, around sexuality always existed it's just part of everything it's always be and so in fact in fact if you look back it's the way we begin to divide heterosexuality that makes that that becomes the difference Mm -hmm. not the reverse
0: how we decide to divide heterosexuality
1: part of it from a patriarchal response i'm gonna believe that all oppression is patriarchal first and foremost Mm -hmm. because only the patriarch believes power over Mm. So white supremacy is a patriarchal response. Right. Not patriarchal It's not a white supremacy response. It's a reverse. Ooh. All right. Uh so
0: so we we're, we're just I mean, does it go before back further than the South? Before we start talking about the actual— Well, this I'm not actual... saying it goes
1: back from the I'm not saying so. What you're hearing me saying is not that it goes back further from the South. What I am saying that if not so, you, I'm a Pisces Aquarius, okay, and so my Aquarius like to connect dots, and so if not for these events, okay, then the then the the notion of the black uh, migration to Harlem, and at the time Harlem becomes the black mecca, and if not for that, and this artistic movement, That's and this relationship to this intersection of black homophobia and white supremacy, the creation, so. So, drag ball is a Harlem Renaissance creation, yeah, Just which like. they will not teach you in school. No, they won't. They won't. <laughs> Sometimes though, but yeah, not, maybe not today. School. Yeah, today, but absolutely right.
0: But when I was in was right. early
1: aughts, I didn't learn this until I I had, I got nobody much told me.
0: I didn't hear about yeah. ballroom until two thousand eight. Yeah,
1: and most folk and most ballroom folk don't know that. And in fact, to your wonderful point, the way that we have uh, historicized ballroom is through the lens of Jenny Livingston and Paris Basically, is Burning. That's, that's the that's
0: yeah. the holy text, yeah. if you will, for uh, so many people. Uh, uh,
1: um, and then Madonna's, and that's 1990, and Madonna's Vogue comes out at the same time. The problem with both of them is that, one, is through a white woman's lens. Um, two, though, um, Paris is Burning is a great artistic documentary, It's but it's culturally exploitive. Um, and Madonna... The notion, white folks sometimes still believe you're doing the Madonna Vogue, like she created Vogue. And that's, I oftentimes say, um, um, uh, um, contrary to some popular belief, she didn't create Vogue. In fact, the notion of Paris Dupree, um, there's a conflictual story around Paris Dupree and black trans women in prison created, which could be the same story, but in the early 70s. But anyway, those two created this moment. It um it's a real imperial, if you will, that all of a sudden we begin to exist in the right. eyes of larger communities. Um, And so
0: it makes sense. I mean, so, of course, so I would, out of the people who didn't know about uh, Vogue and Ballroom and all that later in life, like myself, I'm at least privileged to say that I've known about it since at least 2008. That's still much later than it's, you know, just the entire community existing. But there are hella people, like you just said. Who are just now finding about it through Pose seasons yeah. one and yeah, two, yeah, yeah, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, yeah, yeah. and then maybe before that, RuPaul's Drag Race because yeah. they do a quote death drop, yeah. and people are trying to figure out where they do these quote
1: death drops from. And there was these seminal moments. So you think about two thousand. Funny you said two thousand eight. You think about two thousand eight, nine. Um, what happened back to back? A, a trans woman, black trans woman, an ISIS king. Um she went on America's Next Top Model and came out as trans. And Isis King is from the houseball community. She was Isis Tsunami. At the same time, Pony and Malachi and Deshaun and Leomi Leomi. Prince were all part of Vogue Evolution. Right. And they went on MTV's America's Best Dance Crew as the very first black and Latino openly gay and trans dance crew. Um, And so that began to happen. And then a guy named Eric Archibald, from the House of Milan, he was legendary at that time. Now it's icon, but it's legendary at the time, he was in the House of Milan, and he and um was on a show called MTV Styles. And why he's important is because he and some other Milan's were junior stylists um under June Ambrose in the early days of Puffy and Missy and styling them. And there was a split between June and the June and they um part of the conflict was around. Believing they were not, their stories or their their acknowledgement, their craft was not being acknowledged, and they went on their own. And so that when in two thousand and maybe nine, when that show came on, um, he it then marked another moment for ballroom. And then there was a show on Oxygen called House of Style thing, and Atiba, who was in the House of Milan, he was on that. And then you begin to see this this stuff roll out a little later. Tyra was on Strut. Um Trace Lissette was on uh, Amazon's uh, Transparent. Amaya King was on Lee Daniels Star and Miss Lawrence is on Star and then Pose happens.
0: hmm I wanna throw one in there. I wanna throw one in there. Um Deshaun Wesley.
1: Did, so that Deshaun the part of Vogue Evolution
0: did um the
1: choreography for the Wiz Live. Well, there's a whole so that that's so that's TV. In terms of choreography and dancing, there's a whole lot of ballroom folk. In fact, I, I, you know. So the diaspora is thick. The diaspora is thick. But also, you know, there, there needs to be, and to some degree, some reparations. You know, uh, um, let me back into that one. Okay, here we go. So <laughs> everyone who knows me know I'm a Janet Jackson fanatic. She is the mother of the girls. She created the air that the girls breathe. And there, there's this thing that for me that happened with the Super Bowl. And part of the question is, what is the problem with the black woman's body to both white supremacy and, and, and patriarchy? And so her breast comes out and all this other stuff. She's punished. Justin's career goes up. But the creation of YouTube is in relationship to the breast. And so when they created YouTube, to, to, they wanted this platform to watch the video over and over and over again. And then YouTube was created. That then allowed Ballroom to archive Ballroom. Because at the time, all we had was these, in the early days, these VHS tapes and then CDs. But when they started archiving, when we started archiving on YouTube, it then allowed larger communities to see us. And so for then, they were like, oh, my God, what is this? At the same time, there were black gay men and Latino gay men who were hairdressers, choreographers, stylists, makeup artists to these stars. And it would take these videos and show them to stars. That is why if you watch almost every black reality TV show, most of the black cisgender women are talking like black gay men but performing black trans women. Not just black trans women, but black trans women specifically from ballroom. That's where all the shit came from. That's, that's all that's it, comes where it from. all came from. If you from. think about, if you look at a lot of the reality TV shows, especially Love and Hip Hop, which I love. I'm going I'm... Unf- and the Real Housewives of Atlanta. that. But love, let me go back to Love and Hip Hop. And what so I, my guilty pleasure... Is reality TV. It is my guilty pleasure. And he, there's a large critique of it. But one of the things I appreciate about Mona Scott a little bit is her willingness to to invoice sexuality in hip-hop. She had trans folk on there and blah, 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 and all this other stuff and lesbians. And so that was very brave of her um, to do that. But, you know, I watch the way that a lot of the hip-hop, the guys on the show, and I was watching their... Um, the reunion show, especially on LA and and Atlanta. And the way they're dressed are like black gay men from Ballroom who dr who walk the called high fashion streetwear and stuff like that. And so when I was younger, straight men did hip hop didn't dress like that with 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 these big frames on and diamonds on them and this and that and pearls, blah blah blah. So they it looked like ballroom.
0: So even the current
1: day oh, yeah, absolutely. fashion yeah, absolutely. in, in
0: patriarchal, Absolutely.
1: heteronormative hip-hop. Absolutely. No, let me tell you something. You know, the very thing that we ballroom got. Ballroom has its hands. Well, and not just ballroom, but particularly ballroom, but black gay men, period. You know, when I was younger, that thing, the way that we dressed, we got beat for. Right. And so now straight men dress the way that we dress. I call it, <laughs> I say that trade, So what we used to call it straight men, are in butch queen drag today. They dress like, at least when you were younger, and we dress a certain kind of way, you could kind of, Figure someone right. out on the cruise. You can't today because Trey dress like us, and tr- and a lot of sister into black women dress like trans women, um, in ballroom with the hair, the makeup, and some of them, you know, um, what's her name? What is uh Kim Kardashian's little sister name? Chloe? No, the the, the youngest one. that's really big. Um, has yeah. a different name from the from the Not Kardashian, but. Jenner Kylie Jenner Kylie so Kylie in many ways you look at the way that Kylie dresses and I know that Tokyo is her stylist so with Tokyo is from ballroom and Tokyo is also working with the Maya so there's this relationship where black gay men work with some of the trans women in ballroom and then when they begin to work with stars they took the same style and now the stars are dressing like these trans women from ballroom And but what you all have is people believing that these trans women are copying these cisgender women when it's the reverse it's the other way around even their bodies, the notion of these these small waists and getting their butt pumps like trans women.
0: Mm. So there are only VHS tapes. Yeah. There were there was only one event, so
1: one event, what do you mean one event?
0: At which a VHS tape could be created. So maybe there was something going on in New York. And then something <sighs> And else so was. someone in Dallas, Texas was not there. So how like Someone would have to let the copy of the VHS tape. Mm. Or did Dallas Texas mm. even have a
1: ballroom scene yet? So so you read so, mine. So the mind.
0: So those different scenes didn't happen until YouTube happened because then we got not the always. groups like, uh, well, there's a, Facebook didn't come around until like 2004. Four, yeah. But we do have that. Today we have the group uh, Ballroom Dips and teas and yeah. all that, which I'm a part of. But I, I always, anytime I post in there or comment, I say, I'm not a member of Ballroom. I'm just, you know, watching this video and ask a question. But like the fact that we can talk about that in a, in the timeline of modern modernity,
1: but let's go back to prior to YouTube. So you know, it's what one. I saw. Start walking. Let me back into who I am. So I again, Michael Robinson. I'm from Camden, New Jersey. Mm. Um, and my trajectory about Camden is that it's hood hood that you can't get any hooder than Camden. I made that word up. Um, i oftentimes tell people I have a hood trajectory with a radical sissy sensibility. And so I grew up in Camden, uh, uh, moved to New York 20 years ago, after doing some work, blah, 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 blah. When I first got into Baltimore in May 94, 95, there was only four cities at Houseball. New York, D.C., Philadelphia, and Baltimore. Right. So New all York. East Coast. New City, right, Villa. And this is Houseball. Because remember, you know, uh, um, dragball morphed into Houseball.
0: So drag ball, for those out there listening, is like, in the documentary,
1: The Queen. That's the morphing part. So drag ball is what was created during the Harlem Renaissance. And we call it drag ball only because we had no category for trans. So we went up in drag. And in fact, you know what's so interesting? That as Adam Clayton Powell created this campaign, and part of the pre-civil rights and then civil rights uh, mantra or trajectory was around integration, the very thing that you were homophobic against was the most integrated space. So this drag ball was very integrated. Very, very integrated, and so after World War II, where other cities become blacker—Chicago, Detroit, D.C., and Philly—these drag ball migrates. But to your point around the Queen, 1967, black trans woman in Crystal LaBeija, she resisted racism in a pageant drag ball circuit. She walks off a stage in protest. There's a guy named Phil Black, who was the only African American drag performer who had to screen at this Guild card, and he says to her, "Had we he have this conversation around, we need to go back to this formation." of an all-black drag ball. And so they have a first ball. In 1968, the very first um, house was created called the House of La Beja. So the construction from drag ball where only um, trans women, we called them drag queens at the time, were p- participating to a kinship political response. House was created, named after Crystal, and she had children. Children, all predominantly trans folk. So that's 67. 73, though, was the very first time a gay man, we call them Butch Queens in the ballroom, walked the ball, Butch Queen Models Magazine face, and was Erskine Christian. So between those that time period, 67 to 73, you saw the creation of house ball with mother, then father, and children. And then in the 70s, you saw more houses being created, Brooklyn houses. But 86 was the very first time that house ball Migrates out of New York City to D.C., guy named Eric Christian Bazaar, leaves New York, goes to D.C., meets up, um, collaborates with a guy named Lowell, and they create the House of Khan. In 89, in Philadelphia, a guy named Michael Gaskins created the very onyx, the, the onyx ball brings um, ballroom to Philly. In fact, it's, they're celebrating the 30th anniversary of the Philly ballroom scene in 1990, Baltimore. So it was only really four cities for the most part. But then in the mid-'90s, you saw this explosion. And then you could talk about Chicago in the early-'90s who had some stuff going on but not necessarily seen. But then you saw the explosion in the mid-'90s. You know what's interesting? Uh, this notion, I, when I say that drag ball migrates after World War II in relation to oppression, I, that's why I always also call to say that the ballroom is a black freedom movement. Because, like, all freedom movements, it's migrating across the country um, in contestation to oppression. And so let me connect that to the mid '90s, where a guy named Tony can't think of his last name, but he creates a House of Escada, and he creates a House of Escada on Morehouse campus. And him creating House of Escada, he creates Atlanta ballroom scene. So what does it mean that the same space that developed the 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 the, the work of Martin Luther King also developed in many ways ballroom? That's a freedom movement. Wow, for you all that's listening. This
0: is like a personal church service right now. I am just in awe. But I have some questions. Yes. So let's go back to the span between 1967 mm-hmm. and 1973. Three? Mm-hmm. Okay, so we got the first house, the House of La Beja. La Beja.
1: Then I say that that's a crystal, if you will, is like the grandmother. Of everything. Of everything. And then the mothers come out. They came and, out. And right let's talk time. about the mothers coming out. So, so do we see
0: this model of what a house and a mother should be? And we say, oh, well, we want it. Or was there some tea there in terms of we were all part of it and now we want to go out and make our own thing? Well, or was it a program saying, hey, we need to uh, spread the good word
1: and you will be the house of this mm-hmm. and you will be the house of this? It, 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 it's the ontology of blackness. Black people create. And we oftentimes create again when we are faced at the brink of annihilation. And so, um, and so just what is that in which we do. Peppa La Beja, um, I one of the mothers of ballroom. She didn't create the house of La Beja, Crystal did, but she began to run it. You know, Dorian Corey, Avis Pandavis, um, Duchess La Wong. I call we call them, we call we also add an Angie extravaganza to that, even though she doesn't come out to the 80s. But we call her one of the mothers because the House of Extravaganza ushered large numbers of Latinos in 82.
0: So do you know anything about the origins of the uh, Extravaganza family house?
1: Well, they were created in 82 by Angie and Hector Extravaganza. Not the Hector that just passed, but a, another Hector in and 82. And in that, it it, it Because it they felt like they needed their own house? or Well, no, just they wanted to be part of the community, and they were predominantly Latino, and so they ushered it in. And they had there was a lot of tension often when they first came into the Baldwin community. But David Altima, or David Padilla, um, we call him Altima because that's the last house he was in. David Padilla was actually walking balls in the 70s, one of the only Latino gay men walking balls before the House of Extravaganza. then he winds up being an extravaganza.
0: Wow. And
1: my great friend, funny that we're in Brooklyn, because most of these houses were created in Harlem, the first ones. A uh, uh, Paris Dupree, who's the, the, one of the mothers as well, she calls herself the mother of Brooklyn houses because she comes from Brooklyn, and she had a house called the House, the house of Brooklyn Ladies and then named it Dupree. And so my good friend, the pioneer icon, R.R., uh, R., Ruben Rivers, creates the House of Chanel in 1976 in Brooklyn. So I began these Brooklyn houses after Dupree, and then in 78, Richard and Larry create the House of Ebony. And then I think 79 or 80, um, Kevin Omni creates the House of Omni. So the 80s begin to really explode in terms of the creation of these houses. But you also see the changing of houses being named, uh, strategically being named in some ways. Okay. Culturally being named in many ways to named after fashion designers. Mm. So. Dior? A lot of things. Um, Milan. Milan. Even though it's Chanel, a, a, a Chanel. Well, you know Chanel was in seventy six. You right. Miyaki Mugler, all these other houses. Um, uh, so yeah, you know, um, Saint Laurent.
0: Yes, which my friend in fashion, shout out to you, Terrence, always gets on me because I say that wrong. All the the whole name. Yeah. I do it on purpose yeah. because I'm not a fashion person, and so I say yeah, i have Saint Laurent. Yeah, and it just grates his nerves. He's so funny. Um, wow. First, okay is there any not even published but just a text on everything that you are talking about right now like a holy bible of ballroom that we can
1: all refer to and and look back on there's there's things written in in different places george chauncey who's one of the premier white um historical people right um historical scholars It's funny because there's a a tension between the way that white queer scholars write about drag ball and then black queer scholars. Partly there is a romanticism that Mm -hmm. says that Harlem was still very open. And it was for white gay folk who came from Greenwich Village up to Harlem to to party, to visit. But... Clearly, it wasn't open for black queers who lived in Harlem, and so there's an interesting thing. So that's that. There's a book, a text called um, discipline. "Oh, It's Gonna Come," The Color of Discipline. I think there's a text called that. Um, um, but there's some pieces written up. Uh, um, you know, uh, Marlon Bailey. Marlon Bailey very, writes the very first dissertation. About the houseball community through UC Berkeley, um, and he then his dissertation became a book called Butch Queen up in Ponce. Oh, I, I that's saw about the Detroit about scene. Yeah, um, Edgar Rivera Colon wrote the second dissertation on houseball community from an anthropological lens out of Rutgers. Um, so there's things. Yeah, yeah. I published an essay called The Train Sounds of Black Freedom. I actually teach a course, a two day course at Union Theological Seminary called that. And me and my colleague Robert Simber. Who wrote, wrote an essay called "Being Legendary" or "To Be Legendary"? Something like "To Be Legend." He and I at the New School we teach a, we co instruct a course called Vogology, looking at the history of the house community and placing in conversation with other historical stru- struggles. But there's a, quite a essays written. I told you Benjamin Hart. Oh, he wrote a he. So he's from the House of Ninja. He wrote a seminal text called um, "Who Does Vogue Belong To?" And his query is that you know his assertion is that as a young black gay man growing up in Massachusetts what Vogue meant for him. And he says to white people, I'm not interested in giving it to you. Mm. Yeah, it's very, very... Mm-hmm. And it caused some tension in ballroom. Whoa. Huh. Um,
0: I want to <laughs> slow it down. Okay. Uh, and lighten it up just a little. Okay. Uh, I heard you say something and you, you self-corrected. What was that? And, um... So I want to know what's the difference or what is the process of going, first of all, becoming legendary and then becoming iconic. Or is it the other way around?
1: So what's that? You're trying to get me in trouble. And so, oh. you know, so this notion of status, right? When I first came into Ballroom, there were only four statuses. Okay. Up and coming statement, statement up and coming legend a legend. Um, and then this is just my belief that the more marginalized you are as a community, the more desire, some oftentimes you desire to be seen, to be visible, to be um, read as legible by those who you think have more power than you. And so we create these statuses, we construct more statuses in response to that to some degree, right? But it makes sense because here's a community that is predominantly black and Latino. And this blackness, constitutionally, was not human for two hundred years. And theologically, we've been an abomination, and since we've been in this country, in a way, we've been Christianized. So, not human and abomination never equals freedom. That's not you know one that one plus one is never going to equal two. Yeah. And so, um, so it makes sense that we create these things to to respond to. We're valuable. We're valuable. Looking for something outside of us to. Um, define our value, and so then all of a sudden, you know, um, this notion of being an icon had come along. An icon as a status versus icon as something else. So I remember I was at um, my my brister, who's no longer here, a cabbage this icon Ebony her um, going away service, and me and a colleague of mine named Dre Ebony, he's an icon. And, of course, the pioneer icon, Junior LaBeige, were having a conversation around this definition of icon. Mm -hmm. And so Junior pushed to Dre. said, the problem with, and this was in 2012, the problem with your newer icons is that you believe that icon is a status. And Junior said, legendary is a status. You've become legendary for a category. Icon is when you have transcended ballroom and given to ballroom, given back to it. My son, Damon Humes, who was an icon co-founder of the House of Blinding says it a little differently but agrees with Junior and says that, that some people think that you get deemed legend and you keep walking you get deemed icon. He said that's not an icon, that's just a longer walking legend. So the icon is who you are. Janet's an icon, without a doubt. She's created spaces against my girlfriend. <laughs> uh, Michael, an icon. And so all of these things. So there is still this def- this 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 tension in ballroom. And I love the tension. I love the fact that ballroom is always engaged. At what we call it the invitation of the problem. Never trying to reconcile it, but always index the tense space to make space and more space and more space and more space. And, more space. Um, and so there's this tension between how you deem folks, what does it mean to be deemed icon, because we have a little icon committee and all this other stuff. So, yeah.
0: And it's alive. It's a,
1: yeah. It means it's alive. It's, yeah, yeah. And it's kicking. Yeah, yeah.
0: Now I want to know about probably the 2000s to present with specific focus on this creation of a social media, social media to include YouTube as a vehicle. Um, And then where we are today with
1: just all of social media and pose. Yeah. So I, I, you know, oftentimes when I do lectures um, or talks about ballroom. Some of my, some of my, uh, particularly white feminist colleagues have a critique, of ballroom. Oh, okay. Just like Judith Butler did. Paris, Do they know? All a that? Paris is burning, and part of it, is the critique was that these trans women in uh, Paris is burning are reducing were reducing women to notions of femininity. So the idea that they perform womanhood. To having to be overly feminine was a problem, and so there's some truth to that. Some truth, and so, and so I hear the same critique, and I oftentimes there's it is some truth in that. There's a but it's an antiquated response or critique because it does not take into account of social media, and YouTube, right? So all that I just said about how now these black gay men and Latino gay men in 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 pop culture in entertainment are taking these videos and because of uh, Instagram, these stars are um, looking at these trans women performing them, uh, 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 looking at the way they dress and their bodies and everything like that. The question becomes now you're seeing cisgender women perform trans women. Who's performing who now? Right. And that has everything to do with the creation of social media and ballrooms' expansion across not only the United States but particularly around the globe um and and it's very difficult in many ways um to sort of contain a cultural a cultural what's the word i want to use a cultural i don't want to say dogma a cultural um Partic- particularity drag. around what ballroom is now because it's across so many, you know, in almost every geographical region in the United States where there are large numbers of black folk, ballroom's there. And now you're seeing, particularly in Paris, um, and the way that Paris... I was going to say, even where there aren't a lot of black people. Well, but, but Paris is one of those scenes that is. And that so, does have it, yeah. And so Paris creates itself in many ways the same way that ballroom in New York creates itself back in the day in the drag balls. It creates itself because a person was looking for a black gay community, comes to New York City in the late 80s, early 90s, um, goes to the pier, finds ballroom, becomes, a, one becomes a the other one becomes a ninja, I believe, go back to Paris and creates a ballroom community, which winds up creating a black gay community. There's which is the, happening now today. Which is happening now today. And the community is predominantly of color because it's predominantly migrant Africans. Whereas in other European cities, you know, the Russia, the countries of Russia and Sweden, where there's a lot of white folk, that's around Vogue and vote competition, and then you create extension of houses around that versus Paris in many ways the same way you New York. You keep, it's organizing community. It's creating cultural response by black kinship structures and everything like that. Not that they don't have kinship structures in those whiter European cities, but the 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 racial and cultural and ethnic differences, whiteness in many ways, um, sometimes can pose a problem um, and tension around what borough is today. Yeah.
0: It's again alive and kicking and evolving and growing, right? And I think that uh, at least from where I stand, I want to be defensive of the right for people that are in the community to be able to define what it is to these other people who are trying to tell me that a death drop is a thing. I'm like, at least I know that the people that I know say that's not what it is. That's That's not not what it's called. That's not what it's called.
1: So the 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 original. Name for that dip, dip. was the Makaela. Makaela. And so the tension, some of the conflictual stories that who created. There's a my sister, I love her to death, the iconic trans woman named Ashley, icon, and the house of icon. She was a St. Clair, who created dramatic um vogue for trans women. And so the conversations that she created that. Then there's a guy named Mystery who's no longer here, who Mr. Dior, he'd be an icon now who created dr- Dramatic Vogue for Butch Queens. And so um, there's a conflict between who created, most people say Ashley, but both of them get some sort of credit and this. If that's where it comes from. Then when Deshaun, in 2004, there was a ball in Atlanta, and Jasmine Couture sponsored um, the category $5,000 performance. <laughs> and Deshaun won, and Deshaun did the, the the Mach-Eller Dip and it was called Five Thousand. Then guys in Harlem saw the video, and then they created it, and then they was telling people they created a new dance called the Five Thousand. Okay. Yeah. That's a beautiful thing. Why? So to some it degree, you, you, but to some degree that social media and YouTube have become, in many ways, some would say a curse, but some to say a blessing. Because when they say it, you go, Ah, no, 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 no. <laughs> they make two glass things to that. Um, I remember when Vogue Evolution went on MTV. Okay. And before they went on MTV, Pony created Vogue Evolution because he wanted to create a dance crew that went around the country to do social justice and HIV prevention through Vogue. Deshaun worked for me and Pony worked for me part-time. He went to Deshaun and they began to have this conversation. Pony says to me, Father, I know I want to call it Vogue, but I don't know what else to call it. And I was had I had a ball called Evolution of Standards. So he said evolution. And they were a group. And it was not just the five of them. It was other folk in the group. I was a fan of the show, though. And I began to see these dance crews dancing and using Laomi's name and doing her moves and everything like that, but putting on historical narrative. And I'm sure Laomi and them saw it as well. And I said, send Pony a text message. Are you looking at this? Pony never watched the show. Then it, and so they told Pony, listen, this was happening. And then they auditioned for the show. And this is 2008. And when they went to audition, they made the show but was told they couldn't go to L.A. to be on the show because two of their members had opened court cases. The next year, they auditioned again, got rid of two of the members out of the group, but to audition, added Prince, made the show, went on the show just to find out it wasn't true that they couldn't go last year, the year before, about because two of their members had opened court cases. It was that MTV didn't think they were ready. The country was ready for this kind of group, Mm. what have you. And so when they, the very first episode, I remember the black cisgender, I gather heterosexual judge, the guy, he had made a comment. Saying, I'm so glad that y'all are on here. Is that Randy Did, Jackson? No, not him. Oh, yeah. The other one, the younger one. He said, I'm glad that you're on here because too many people were doing this. And now you can, Now we all know where the history has come from. And so. And he was talking to the group. He was talking to the group, yeah. Yeah. The group
0: Vote Vogue Evolution. Evolution. Yeah. Okay. So that is just one. Example of how social media has helped to spread uh, within the community and outside of the community. Then there are things that I would say, and you know, you're you're currently listening to this on this QPOC Life, and this QPOC Life is comprised of not just myself, but other members, literally everyone else of whom loves RuPaul's Drag Race, hmm. and you just hummed and looked around with your eyes the same way that I do when people mention RuPaul's Drag Race. Um, how has that impacted or affected
1: ballroom? And well, ballroom. how has ballroom impacted RuPaul? And so, well, okay, so, <laughs> um, so I give credit to RuPaul in terms of what he's been able to do. Um, especially I remember in the early '90s seeing you better work on BET. I said, what the? F-? I could not believe it. And for him to be that bold and for him to be on MTV, so I give him credit. That much credit. Um, But Paris Dupree, I remember in 2003, we had a ball at the Club Roxy is no longer here, and we honored Paris. And one of the things she had said um, was that she had some resentment towards RuPaul because that, that notion of sachet chante to RuPaul in many ways that comes from Paris and, mm-hmm. and all this other stuff. And so that's that. But what I do have a critique of RuPaul Drag Race is that in many ways, is lodged through a white queer lens that oftentimes, so we call them back in the day, drag performances, only because we didn't have the language. We didn't call people trans. We called them drag queens. And for us, and mostly in black communities, the people who most of them who did those, the lip sync performance were trans women. Very few were just butch queens who went up and dragged. It's a white lens. And for us, most of the time, they were done on a Sunday. It's not accidental. The day that we went to church. It was a church Right, thing. absolutely. And so we go to this space where the trans woman becomes like the, the same thing that she went to church every Sunday to hear that black woman with the big voice. Again, the black woman, both trans and cis, being the Christ of the community. And I call it, the lip sync performance, I call it a hermeneutics. A hermeneutics is a theological word that means how you read a text. Hey. And so... This performance were contextualizing our pain, our sorrows, our joy and desire in this space. The space became the church and, and, and the way as to for elation and to let go of, of trauma through this drag performance. But they were also, um, I call it a homiletics, and the homiletics is a way of minister. So not only were they like the black woman singing, but it was also the minister. Um, but the problem with us, though, as gay men, is that we won't push back on our patriarchy and our transphobia, and so we use these trans women as spectacles, perform for us. But when the lights go down, we're not interested in your full humanity. And so that part of, not that it's supposed to be, but that historical narrative um, is not necessarily part of RuPaul. And so, and you don't see trans women on there. You'd see guys who go up and drag. And it's called Drag Race, but that's oftentimes they get and it's a real satire-like. And that's never necessarily been our então- life. <Mozart. popến Kawaii> uh,
0: where can people find
1: you? You know what? I, so let me tell you, I forgot to say this. Okay. Thank you. So I, again, I come from, I, I um, come from Camden, New Jersey. I said this earlier. Um, the hoodest of the hoods. The hood hood. Um, and love Camden, right? Nor- I was born in North Camden. But I um worked for the Board of Education as a crisis counselor. So I began public health. And partly it was because I applied to law school twice, got accepted to Rutgers Law School, and was put on a waiting list, so I got tired of waiting. So I went and began working for the Camden City Board of Education, and at the same time, I began working part-time in two hospitals doing psychiatric emergency services. And then at the same time, I began facilitating a youth discussion group for LGBT young people of color at a black gay organization in Philadelphia called Colors. One of my great peop- people, one of the people I say I stand on their shoulders is who I call the pioneer Kwame Banks Ferragamo. And so he brought me into Colors to do that group. At the same time, I began to go to graduate school to get a master's in education. I say this for a reason, not to boast. And then I remember... um. Hating my job, beginning to hate my job. The more I did the group, the more I began to hate my job. And the beautiful thing about working for the Board of Education in the Northeast is that when it is bad weather, when it snows bad, you don't have to go to work. Mm -hmm. And so when the weatherman will forecast snow, and I will wake up in the morning, there was no snow, I start getting mad at God. I said, something's got to change. This is a true story. May 1999, I was sitting home. I lived in, at this time, I lived in the suburbs of Blackwood, New Jersey, and... I heard of, I was listening to Maxwell and I heard a voice tell me to move to New York City and do the work you want to do with LGBT young people and I got your back. July, I resigned um, from the Board of Education in September of 1999 I moved here with $177 worth of change and I've been here ever since. So I've been doing public health and research for the past 25 years, so I was blessed enough to co-create some stuff. I um, mean, then I got fired in a very public and painful way. Um, one of the great Greek philosophers in Montaigne that says that philosophy is about learning how to die. And so I went to seminary, and not to be a minister, but I was always intrigued and wanted to put public health in conversation with theology because it was my assertion that the theological abomination narrative has direct impact on health, health disparities impacting black gay men. Ergo, you tell black gay men the very essence of who they are is antithetical to God, um, and then you ask them, to, and their body is then um, eschatologically going to hell. That, then why would they engage in protective factors over a body they've been told is no good to God and going to hell? I wanted to shift that narrative, and I was blessed enough to get two master's degrees in theology. Um, and so for the past seven years, along with the public health work, I do race, sexuality, and theological work through the Center for Race and Religion and Economic Democracy created by my good sister, Dr. Charlene Sinclair. I'm also a member of an international sound collective called Ultra Red, which emerges out of the active movement um, in 1994. Don Ryan in L.A. and, and his couple of his partners created, um, they were doing needle exchange work. Mm. And they wanted to, to, to create, to use sound. They began to do these sound sessions. and To use sound as an apparatus to investigate systems of oppression. To make a long story short, we've been around since then and we have six projects around the world. One in Berlin, two in London, two in Los Angeles, and one in New York City called Vogology. Work with the houseball community. Last a couple of things I'll say about that is that I am an adjunct professor at the New School University in New York and at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. I do. I'm also, I've been a guest lecturer at Pratt Institute as well. Um, and um, was a TED resident and also uh, became a, a consultant for the new show, Pose. Hey. Let me say this last thing about Teresa it. ballroom. It's interesting that I didn't talk about this and it would kill me. I told you that I would, I came into Ballroom in 95, 94, 95. Um, I was out longer than I came into Ballroom, like a lot of folk. But I followed my gay children in this instance. Even though I was out longer than my gay son, Leroy at the time, and Damon Humes, I followed them into Ballroom. And I became a member of the House of Romeo Geely that was created by a guy named Otis. And then I left Geely and became an Ebony. I was proud to be an Ebony. Um, I'm in 96 and 99. And then I moved to New York City. And then me and my son Damon and my good friend Preston left Ebony. We created the house of Manolo Blonick. Then I left Blahnik, and I was tired of us being named as the white designers. Mm. So me and the Brown Curse, the Abundance on Pose, and my good friend John Gabriel created the house of Maasai, named after the Maasai tribe. And my good friend Saret King of Zoli was part of that as well. Then I became a slave again. I took. Masai and merged it into the, the iconic house of Miyake Mugler and I became the New York father of the house of Mugler and Dominique, who plays lecturer was a New York mother. Then I left Mugler Keep and with three other friends, we created the house of Comme des Garçons. Then I left Garçons and went to the iconic house in Milan and then just recently left Milan and created the Royal house of Maison Margiela with my son, the legendary... Vinnie Watson and my son, the legendary Trey, and also with the iconic Chastity Moore, whose temperance and the legendary smiles. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Social media,
0: are you present anywhere online, or um, or do you really prefer to lay low?
1: No, so, you know... uh, me and that thing called technology, we've never been and good, that's okay. good girlfriends. That's right? right. And, and so I'm on Facebook. My kids are keep pushing me to get Instagram. Yes. So by the beginning of next year, I will get it. But I'm on Facebook, Michael Robertson. Um, and let me tell you a couple of things. One, you asked about the things we're doing. And so to talk about two things particularly, which was the work that we're doing called the Arbor Santana Ballroom Freedom School Project that look, mm-hmm. that's looking at creating a freedom slash free school in the house ball community with my great colleague Robert Simber, with some help with the Musa Geddes Foundation and Sean Van Sluis. We're doing some work internationally in certain cities. And House Size Matters National Leadership Initiative, which was created by my cisgender Asian daughter at the New York State Department, but was at the Heat program in Brooklyn, Jennifer Lee, and one of the other lead organizers, Genovia Chase. And so those are some things.
0: All right. So those are all the things that Michael is working on. Some of them. Some of the things. Yeah. And you can find on Facebook Michael Roberson. Yeah.
1: R-O-B-E-R-S-O-N. Um,
0: and so we are going to call this one. Uh, and that's that. Thank you for being here, Michael. Thank you for uh, that Looking be forward great. to having you back. Thank you, thank you.
1: Thank you,